1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Jehovah Show podcast today on the pod. From fairy issues provincially to talk about raising taxes at the municipal level, why does government have trouble delivering basic services? Plus, Global Mail columnist Gary Mason joins us to discuss the NHL banning specialty jerseys as it turtles to a vocal minority. And the president of the Vancouver Bandits drops by to discuss selling professional basketball to a fickle Lower Mainland. And musician Biff Naka joins us to discuss the 25th anniversary of her landmark 1998 album I, Bificus. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Let's talk government and its ability to deliver services or... Actually, not not a great record in delivering basic services, and I say this in regards to what's been transpiring in the last, what's been transpiring here in British Columbia in the last twenty four hours. Now, we learned yesterday BC's Ferries is canceling forty eight sailings between Schwartz Bay and Watson. Uh, the Coastal Celebration return to service has been delayed after unexpected complications. With its propulsion system um, from June 28th to July 3rd, there'll be eight fewer daily sailings between Tuas and Schwartz Bay than uh, originally scheduled. Now, I know these things happen, but to me, this is unacceptable, especially as you're heading into the Canada Day long weekend. Now, this is issue number two. Now, that's at the provincial level. Yesterday, we had Vancouver Councillor Pete Fry join us to talk about the city's budget outlook over the next five years with a staff report that warned homeowners uh, that they could be on the hook for a 9% annual property tax hike for every year for the next five years. Now, that comes at the heels of a 10.7% property tax hike uh, this year. Now, I understand uh, there's a lot of obligations that cities have. Now, the Green Party Councillor then went on to say in the interview with me yesterday, that perhaps they'll have to look at other revenue sources. There's no conversation about perhaps the city needs to cut, but no, we uh, should be looking at other revenue sources. And one of the issues he brought up was that parking tax that nobody that I recall uh, on this show in this city or this region liked. Take a listen to his comments.
2: That was defeated in the last term, and I think we heard loud and clear from the from the public that, that it wasn't going to be equitable and, and that folks didn't want to pay for... Uh, their private vehicles on public streets. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it is a a conversation that may need to be revisited at some point because I I get that it's not popular, but neither is a
1: 9% tax increase. Uh, no, it doesn't need to be revisited. That's my response. And the reason I say that, the city in its uh, budget outlook says they have $730 million in capital spending, inflation, rising construction costs, a labour shortage and wage growth as contributing factors to their incredibly grim budget outlook. But within that outlook, it also says that the city spends about $160 million, $168 million on affordable housing, $23 million on child care and homelessness, and $4 million to fight the opioid uh, crisis. That amounts to 15% of the total city budget, which is in and around $2 billion. Uh, I know it's not easy, but City Hall should be looking at core businesses. What are they there for? What do citizens expect from a municipal government? Garbage pickup, community centres, dealing with potholes... The other issues, affordable housing and child care and homelessness, those are jobs that the federal government and the provincial government are responsible for. Now, let's go to the Stanley Park train just for a moment. Yesterday, we had Jordan Armstrong on this show, Global BC reporter, who filed an FOI request to get a better sense of why do we continue to see this train that is so loved by residents and taxpayers and never runs. Now, you, at this point, there's no fixed date, but the park board did say they'd hope to have it running by uh, either Halloween or Christmas. Jordan's guess was probably closer to Christmas. Uh, and, of course, the, these, the park board had said that they're looking at mechanical issues that has been, have been impacting uh, the antique engine. Uh, now, this cancellation of the Stanley Park ghost train has led to a 50% drop in donations to the fire, uh, Firefighter Burn Fund fundraiser as well last year. What's interesting about this is we learned from Jordan yesterday that they had one person who took care of the uh, train. That person retired in 2012. The upkeep was, response, was handed over to the city of Vancouver, not the park board. The city wanted a schedule. They never received one. It's like one entity not talking to the other entity. Now, here's the interesting part. Even though this is a popular train, take a listen here to Jordan's comments yesterday in regards to how badly the city, in this case, well, ultimately the park board, which is responsible for the train, allowed the train to deteriorate. Take a listen.
3: There were brake issues with every single engine and car on the train. Excessive oil leaking on the brake lining. That's an obvious fire hazard. The green locomotives' brakes were not releasing after being applied. I guess it's better that they were not releasing as opposed to not engaging. But anyway, the red engine had overheating and radiator issues. Um, Some of the carriages had no uh, articulation in the wheels, so an obvious derailment risk. And these deficiencies were there. The, The train failed inspection in September, but it continued to run with these deficiencies up until days before that inspection. So people were putting their children, their grandchildren on the train when it had this long list of problems with it, Jeff.
1: This train is popular, people love it, and the city allowed it to deteriorate or the park board, whatever it may be. Ultimately, you have to accept the fact that this is a political decision. They allowed this to do it, and they did it quietly. Well, then you could argue, well, it's an antique train, jazz. you know, these things are very difficult for upkeep. Well, take a listen to Jordan's comments here in regards to the revenue that this train generated.
3: In terms of revenue, in the documents, it's suggested that in a good year, so in years when they've had the full fleet of trains up and running, weather's been good, haven't been any mechanical breakdowns, that sort of thing, the train's been able to bring in close to $2 million in revenue. 1.9 1.9 was the figure in um, the documents we saw, but translate that to profit. We asked Steve Jackson about that today. It would bring in about a half million dollars in profit. It's important for the park board to keep, uh, you know, lifeguards uh, trained and, and other assets that people enjoy. It brings in a lot of money.
1: So a $2 million, uh, $2 million in revenue that the uh, train generates, a half a million dollars in profit, and they allowed it to deteriorate. As uh, saying that uh, you know it's it's past the point of no return. Yet it's incredibly popular with kids and around Halloween and Christmas time. It's all the same issue at the end of the day, folks. You've got a train that's pro- uh, uh, that is popular that people like. They believe government should be running it, and because of political reasons, they've allowed it to deteriorate. And if we're lucky. If we're lucky. We might have one train running by Christmas 2023. It's appalling. We now have a government that is telling its citizens that you expect a 9% property tax increase every single year for the next five years. Yet $160 to $180 million goes towards affordable housing. It goes through other issues that are not a core part of Vancouver's uh, business. $23 million towards child care and homelessness. Give it to the provincial government. They have a $60 billion plus uh, budget. They should be handling that. That should be their issue. million for affordable housing? Where are the feds on this? The challenge we have here in government, whether it's municipal or provincial, is they have basic services to provide the people of British Columbia, whether it be ferries running all the time, but especially around the Canada Day long weekend. You have trains that people love for their kids, part of growing up. Nope, it's not going. Why? Because of political reasons. That's exactly what happened. And then when it's time to say, wait a minute here, let's tighten the belt here at City Hall. We've got over $180 million we're, we're spending on housing and war afford- and homelessness. Let's cut back there somewhere. I know it's not easy. I know uh, you may sound like a bad guy, but these are grown-up decisions. But no, what do I hear from a city councilor? Let's revisit the parking tax. Let's tax homeowners who've already paid for that road, have already paid their taxes for those amenities. We're going to charge them for p- parking. As if as if it's not easy enough, as if it's not it's simple to live in this city already, because it's not expensive enough. Boy, I went on a bit of a rant there. Poor Richard had to sit to the commercial break there. Joining me now is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Hello, Richard.
4: I'm always here for a good Judge Joe Hull rant. <laughs> Sorry, something <laughs> set me
1: off today. I just I don't want to talk about parking taxes. I don't want to talk about the fact this train that's really loved by people and they can't keep it up and running. And then the ferry problems. And I know it's mechanical, but, you know, why can't you do a retrofit in November rather than right before a Canada Day long weekend? Your thoughts just, you know, you cover government, all levels of government. But why does government have so much difficulty providing basic services
4: these days? Yeah, I think there's a lot of pressure on government, but it's also the challenge of balancing all of that. I, I just spoke to Nanaimo Mayor Leonard Krogan. and I know he was on with Jill Bennett earlier today, and he just spoke about the growing challenges that communities face, uh, be it the addiction crisis and public safety and transportation and school infrastructure and hospitals and He says when government pulls one lever, it leaves so many other places that still need support. So that's one of the challenges. Growing population, uh, aging population, leading to sort of record-breaking pressures on our public system. The other part of it all is there are ideologies mixed into all of this. And, you know, you spoke about this idea of a parking tax. Uh, There was a war in some regards on drivers in in Metro Vancouver from uh, some political parties, whereas Mm -hmm. others say, you know, let them drive. Uh, And those sort of ideological debates, which are important to have, our our system is built on ideological debates. Uh, Those sort of Debates fuel a lot of this discussion and lead to great polarization. And And debates are important, but getting to an agreement on those sort of issues is going to be very, very hard. And then the last piece in all this, Jazz, is there's one taxpayer. And yeah. the reality is the way our system is designed is that it comes from three pots of money. And the problem is cities have so few tools to access public cash that they move to things like parking tax or mobility pricing and That is large or property tax increases that you can feel, whereas the provincial government and the federal government have different ways to gather those revenues and it doesn't feel as extreme. And and I think, you know, it would be a profound shift, but we need to have a greater conversation, especially considering, you know, most of our population live in cities. We need to find a way to better allow municipalities to support uh, the sort of services that they need to provide for people.
1: Yeah, it is interesting. And one, it's just a reminder that you know all these things are piling up over the last few days. And just listening to this, and I go, we've got to find a different way, whether it's a different taxing tax system we have to set up. I don't know what it is. But this can't continue with one taxpayer where we're talking about bringing back or considering a parking tax again. Things that we love, like a, as the Stanley Park Miniature Train, that's a, a program that should be – Protected and it makes money, especially. And I know instead we we go down a political ideal. Uh, and it's political ideology at the end of the day that leads to it uh, deteriorating. So it's it's quite frustrating more than anything else. Richard, thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure, Jazz. Have a great show. Yeah, thank you, and have yourself a wonderful Canada Day long weekend. Uh, let's talk to Brian in Coquitlam. Hi, Brian. Hey, hey, Jazz. So I live in Port Coquitlam,
3: which is Brad uh, Brad West and our pools are free this summer. The tax rate from 1% went up only 2%. In two days, the city fixed every pothole that they had with a two-day blitz. Mm-hmm. During the winter, our roads were plowed. We didn't miss garbage day, and after Christmas, they even had extra garbage days to pick up the waste. And all our parking in this city is free. I can't think of one paid parking spot. So I don't know how he's doing it, but this city is maintaining all its services at low cost, what what's going on in Vancouver? Yeah, no, so, absolutely. The roads, the roads, the roads in Port Coquitlam. I'm reminded every time I go to Vancouver and Surrey uh-huh. how good I have it in Port Coquitlam <laughs> because when I drive in Vancouver or Surrey, my car is being shaken to bits because the
1: roads are crap. Brian, thank of- you for your call. I appreciate it. I mean, I, you do see these amazing community centers built in the suburbs. You know, I think in in, in my community in Delta, I think kids up to thirteen uh, on uh, can do drop in basketball and uh, and they don't pay. Because uh, you want to kid, keep, keep kids active. And I know George Harvey and his uh, slate at that time brought it in. I think it was a few years ago. But I'm always amazed when I drop my son off at the local rec center. Kids don't pay. And so they're all playing in the gym and having lots of fun, basketball, pickup games, all going on. And you don't pay as a parent. And I never hear these types of programs in Vancouver. Maybe you have them. I don't I don't know. But when you can't even keep a pool open uh, or you have to shut a rec center down for a little while, it, it, you shake your head. I mean, you really do. Uh, let's go to Michael and Langley. Hi, Michael age as, you know, 25% profit margin on $2 million. And these guys kill the project. Do you know how many businesses would kill to have a twenty five percent profit margin? <laughs> I know, I know. Could you imagine just the profit you take? That you you can hire lifeguards, as Jordan said, uh-huh. and it it, it bogged, and it was ideological. I swear they'll never say it. It was all about decolonizing the park and, and taking something that is loved. Um, you know, I, I took our son many years ago, my wife and I, and, and we had a great time there. Great time. Those are things that build memories that keep you connected to your community. And these folks decide, no, this is the one we're going. Gonna, we're going to we're going to squeeze it slowly so it just goes away and these arguments they give about oh the parts and we don't have anybody to fix it you're talking you know we're sending we're sending people to space i think we can deal with an antique train here in vancouver it is amazing
0: hey it's Ryan Reynolds and i'm here with Keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news
1: Let's talk a little uh, basketball. The Vancouver Bandits are BC's professional basketball team. You probably didn't know or probably haven't heard about them. They're the westernmost club, of course, in the Canadian elite basketball league. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, I was able to catch one of their games. The first time I went with my son, we had a wonderful time. And, you know, I went to love quite a few Grizzlies games in those early days. And it sort of had that same feeling where you got excited. Uh, the crowd was into uh, the game. It was a tight game as well. Uh, And I would highly recommend, if you're looking for some family fun, uh, checking out one of their games. The Bandits will be hosting the Edmonton uh, Stingers on Canada Day. That's Saturday, July 1st at the Langley Event Centre. And the doors will be opening at 5.30, tip-off at 7. But I thought, you know, let's talk to the folks from the Vancouver Bandits because that's probably one of the uh, professional leagues that most Vancouverites may not have heard of. Uh, We're joined now by Dylan Kullar, who's the president of the Vancouver Bandits. Dylan, thank you for coming in today. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, I I wanted to chat with you because, you know, we often talk about the Grizzlies leaving town, but uh, you know, uh, I went out to the game a couple of weeks ago. A lot of fun. Uh, it was exciting. It went right to the wire. And the Langley Event Center, uh, obviously smaller capacity compared to Rogers Arena here, but boy, was everybody into it. It was it was an, it was a fun game. It was a fun experience. Walk me through. Um, for yourselves, you started off as a, as a Fraser Valley Bandits, right? Walk me through that journey for a moment.
5: Yeah, we were formerly Fraser Valley Bandits. The Canadian League Basketball League started off as six teams. We play in May through August. Uh, the six teams include ourselves, Edmonton, Saskatchewan, Niagara, Hamilton, uh, and Guelph. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from there, now we've grown to 10 teams. Uh, where did you play? We played at the Abbotsford Centre, okay, uh, where the Abbey Canucks currently play. Our... Rosters must be comprised of at least 60% uh, Canadian professional athletes. You can have up to three Americans. Uh, we now need to have one international player, so one player who is non-Canadian or non-American. From a talent perspective, I think a lot of people might, might not understand that Like we've had nine players go to the NBA in the last two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have players now this season who have played in the NBA multiple games, 20-plus games in the NBA. So the talent level is not too far. We have most of our Canadians who have Played for for Team Canada or used to play for Team Canada or just starting to play for Team Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, So some exciting basketball is played right in our back door at Mm -hmm. Langley Event Centre. So uh,
1: you play at Langley Event Centre now, but you were playing at the Abbotsford Centre before the Abbey Centre. What convinced you to make the move to Langley?
5: Yeah, we spent three years at the Abbey Centre. First year, phenomenal attendances. Year two, COVID. and. Our league decided to do a bubble tournament in Niagara Falls. We were the first Canadian professional league to return to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was year one of our CBC deal as well. Some great success that year. Come back to year three, we were only able to have four games that season with fans in the stands. We were actually the first pro sports team in BC to welcome fans back in the stands. And we had 50%, 50% attendance capacity. We sold that out mm-hmm. four times. Our deal concluded with the uh, uh, with City of Abbotsford and yeah, it gave us an opportunity to reflect and see okay, how can we be more accessible to the province. And we looked at Vancouver, uh, we were offered by Langley Event Centre, and Langley Event Centre is probably the top mid-sized venue in this country. And you can say it's the capital of basketball in this province, from high school provincials to youth sports, basketball games, now professional basketball, club basketball tournaments every weekend as we left today from Langley Event uh, Centre to come here. All five courts at Langley Event Center are used for a tournament. Capaci-
1: what's the capacity of the Langley Event Center? We're about 5,100. And can you sell that out for a game? we sold it out multiple times already this season. Uh, so you're averaging, you know, 5, 4,500, 5,000 people exactly. a game. Okay. Um, but you made the move. Is, was it a better move? accessible to more people now? Is that part of it? Exactly. We're still accessible to
5: our original fans in the Fraser Valley, Eastern Fraser Valley for Mission, but now we're drawing from as far as Squamish. We have season ticket members from Squamish. We have season ticket members from Vancouver Island. So we have people now commuting as far as those regions, very similar to what the BC Lions see as well. Uh, and we're lucky. Basketball is really one of the most popular sports now uh, in this province, and we're riding the
1: wave. Now, I know uh, if you just look around the amount of basketball academies, it is a more accessible sport. It's just cheaper, let's say, yes. uh, than, uh, hockey and some other sports. It's the nature of, of the sport itself. Um, why in this town we we lost the Grizzlies— What is different from then to today in your mind where you think, uh, you know, basketball can have a future in the city?
5: Yeah, the the popularity of basketball is on an entirely another level than it was when the Grizzlies were here. Why would you say that? Well, it's just the accessibility of the sport. We have many more immigrants coming to this country looking for accessible sports. So young adults and immigrants coming to Canada are looking for soccer or basketball. Uh, The popularity that the Raptors have uh, created from winning the championship. and really just the excitement of playing the game. And when you play basketball, there's more touches on the ball. Uh, families can afford it. You don't need it. And what else do you need besides a ball? You go yeah. to a park and you play.
1: So in your mind, Vancouver is a basketball town? Oh,
5: well, Vancouver is definitely a basketball town. We're seeing it with our attendance. Uh, we're seeing from where these people are coming from as well. We both won the best attendances in the league. And for us, like, the reason why we have that is obviously the basketball is great, but like, you can create such a unique experience with basketball. You've been to Grizzlies games. Mm-hmm. You can feel the energy when you go to the arena with outdoor DJs, outdoor activations. You can There's no boards. There's no masks. You can really see the players. You can feel their energy. You can hear the squeak of the shoe. Uh, it's an experience that people haven't had here in 20 plus years.
1: Now you know professional leagues are sometimes um, have boundaries in regards to how they promote what they can promote. I mean, you're 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 a smaller league. Um, what does that mean in regards to community uh, involvement? Marketing. I mean, do you take chances? Are you a bit more aggressive? How do you try to ingrain the Vancouver Bandits basketball f- name brand within the community?
5: Yeah, we're grassroots in everything we do. Uh, like we're connected to all the basketball academies. There's over 200 basketball academies in this province, uh, which is 200. Show- we have a running list. We're over 200, uh, and wow. that just shows the popularity of the sport. All these micro basketball organizations popping up, and for us, it's about creating an unforgettable fan experience, but also providing accessible ticket pricing as well. We're recently purchased by local owners in the the fall of 2022. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things they evaluated was, how do we make sure, yes, we have our courtside tickets, we have our suites, we have our premier tickets, which are sold out in all facets. But then how do we create a ticket price that's accessible to the community? We created a $15 all-in ticket, taxes and fees included, which has been one of our most popular ticket prices because now young adults and families and kids can come mm-hmm. up to games and enjoy a Vancouver Bandits game.
1: Um, can and this is a bit, bit further out, uh, but will this will this town ever be an NBA town again in your mind?
5: It could be, but we're going to see Seattle probably. Seattle get a team first, and Vegas, and the NBA has to evaluate how they're going to balance the conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, would Montreal get one first? We're seeing a lot of talent come out of the. M- come into the nba from montreal and montreal sold out their nba exhibition game like that yeah uh, it was instantaneously yeah so yeah we'll we'll see for now we're bandit's town and hopefully more people come out to so, bandit's game
1: so who's your core core customer then like when you're out thinking about okay we've got a okay you say families like walk me through sort of a marketing meeting where you want to sell basketball like who do you want to focus on we're focusing on, we're focusing on everyone.
5: Like. We're talking to businesses, we're talking to families, we're talking to young adults, and our experience is so diverse that you can really draw and bring in those people. We're going to make sure it's family-friendly because, say, if you're a business, you want to make sure you can send your best client to your staff and you know they're going to have a safe time mm-hmm. at a band game. And same thing for families, same thing for adults. So we you know where we are marketing to everyone, and, again, basketball being one of the most popular sports, mm-hmm. we, have that, we have that opportunity.
1: What's your um, general attendance?
5: So our first four games have been hovering the 4,500. 4,500. Uh, about a 30% increase from last season. And the capacity is, you're saying, is about 5,100? 5, yeah, 5,100, including all the standing room seats. So if you come to Langley Event Center on the concourse, they have a nice standing bar that wraps the entire concourse. And you can literally be in the food line, or you can be standing at the concourse, and you can still see the game. So for us, we've sold every seat in the house. But yeah, there's some standing room seats that are open. To the, it's all available.
1: Would you want a bigger um, venue to play in? You know, let's sell out these
5: sell out every game first at Langley Event Center, and we and we go from there. We're very happy with where we are. Mm-hmm. Again,
1: the capital basketball of of BC is at Langley Event Center. Because mm-hmm. uh, I know you have the there's gyms behind there as well. There's yeah. tournaments there, so it's always busy, as you say. So uh, in Abbotsford, so the move from Abbotsford to Langley was the right decision for you in the sense of accessibility to more people. It was, and
5: all of our season ticket members that we had when we were in Abbotsford, they all supported the decision, and in fact. Most of them are still with us. Like you look at courtside, those are all mostly people from Abbotsford who will never give up those seats because you know, if you give up those seats, <laughs> there's a, over 300 a, person over a wait list right now for courtside season oh, wow. tickets. Yeah, so they know that. They're locked in. Uh, and for the most part, most of those people from Abbotsford and Chilliwack Mission they're still with us.
1: Now, it's interesting, uh, you know, uh, Ron Toigo uh, from, from White Spot, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he's been involved with the, the, the Vancouver Giants. They moved from Pacific Coliseum to Langley Event Center as well. You're there uh, as professional basketball. Now, could your team be as successful if it was Vancouver-based, or do you think it's actually better to be based in Langley?
5: No, I think we'd be successful whether we're in Langley or in Vancouver proper. Uh, There's a lot of people that want to come to Bandit's Games at Langley Event Center, young adults, but they don't know how to get there. They don't own cars. And the SkyTrain's not developed yet. It's not in Langley. I know it's coming. It's on the horizon. Mm -hmm. Uh, The busing system is starting to improve we actually had uh, chartered buses uh, from for the first three games from Granville street to the Langley event Center pregame and then dropped them off afterwards sold out buses uh, and we'll look to do that again later in the season so just us testing to see what is the interest out here and there's definitely an interest uh, and maybe, who knows maybe one day we do a game downtown it
1: is interesting though isn't it that uh, you know you're you're a smaller league but it seems a lot more grassroots. And Mm -hmm. maybe that's what this town really needs at at its core is to have these grassroots sports and let them build and see where they take you rather than just automatically thinking big leagues.
5: Yeah, and we're we're trying to bring in players who are gritty and tough and are diving for loose balls and taking charges and getting the crowd uh, engaged. And yeah, a team that really... It takes a lot of pride in playing for the Bandits. Yeah. Um, and again, a lot of these players, they have NBA experience or they have aspirations to play in the NBA. So when it might be very similar to the AHL, that mentality where – Like these players are playing for something and they want to get to the highest level. Yeah. Uh,
1: The Vancouver Bandits will host the Edmonton Stingers on Canada Day, Saturday, July 1st at the Langley Event Centre on uh, Hoops uh, and Heroes Night. Doors open at 5.30. A tip-off is at 7 o'clock. I encourage you to check them out. Like I said, I took my son and had a wonderful time. Dylan Clark, president of the Vancouver Bandits, thank you for coming in today. Thank you. All right, let's talk hockey. Well, North Vancouver's Connor Bedard is officially headed to the Windy City. The Chicago Blackhawks selected uh, the Western Hockey League star with the first overall pick of the 2023 NHL Draft last night. 17 year old Bedard is the most hyped prospect since Connor McDavid. Now, the NHL Draft Day is usually a time to celebrate, of course. Uh, here's a comment from Connor uh, after uh, getting the news that he's headed to Chicago.
4: I was thinking a lot about my grandpa right now. Obviously, he doesn't get to be here, but uh, just kind of keeping, keeping him with us, our whole family. And um,
5: But, no, it's crazy to think how many people have helped me and how much fun this journey's been. I was
4: talking about it a lot with my family today. And I remember being here seven years ago for a, for a minor hockey tournament, so just how things kind of come full circle is, is, is incredible.
1: And like I said, the NHL Draft Day is usually a time to celebrate. You can sense it in Connor's uh, tone, his comments that he made. These are young players, and it's an exciting day uh, uh, for them, first of all, getting drafted, but also in recognition of their hard work, their family's hard work, and the sacrifice that's required to make it to the NHL. But, of course, Draft Day is occurring uh, just as the league announced that, that NHL teams will not be donning special jerseys for pregame warm-ups on theme nights. Now, this decision comes as a response to a few players who declined to wear rainbow-coloured Pride jerseys during the season that just ended, which led to unwanted disruptions. Recently, the league's Board of Governors supported Commissioner Gary Bettman's agreement that these refusals overshadowed the team's efforts in hosting Pride nights, where some jerseys were even auctioned off. Now, recently, Globe and Mail's uh, National Affairs columnist Gary Mason wrote on the issue, calling out the NHL and the fact that it turtled to a small minority of players, many of them from Russia, where there remains a significant anti-LGBTQ plus culture. Gary Mason joins us now. Gary, thank you for speaking to us today.
2: My pleasure, Jack. Uh
1: Reading your column uh, in the Globe and Mail uh, when it comes to the NHL and, and uh, its decision after um, the, I guess, growing uh, discontent among some players. Um, was this a missed moment in your mind when it comes to the NHL's decision?
2: Oh, uh, uh, absolutely. It's a, it's a huge, uh, a, a huge miss by the NHL. And it's uh, a, a huge step back, I think, for the league uh, because it uh, uh, it makes them look you know, really out of step with with the times. Uh, I think more than anything, and it shows a a real gutlessness. I think uh, on on their behalf, uh, be, because of the attitudes of a small number of players in the league. I believe, uh, mostly of Russian, you know, uh, heritage. Uh, uh, you know, they they sort of folded their their tent and uh, you know and and decided you know we're we're not we're going to end this practice and 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 because. They couldn't just say no to no more, you know, pride game nights where the players wear rainbow colored jerseys for five minutes, you know, before the game and the warm warmup. Uh, th- so they, they couldn't just say, end that because that would look homophobic. So they had to end all those uh, special Jersey nights, you know, like indigenous nights and, you know, hockey fights cancer and all, all that. And, and it's just insane that they, that they did this. It's just, uh, I don't know. It it just really upset me. And I think uh, that that kind of shone through in my column.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you say to the argument that, look, uh, hockey should stick with hockey and the the world outside. There's enough politics, particularly in a polarized uh, political environment these days, that people try to get away from that world. And it should be about hockey. uh, And it's maybe the right decision by the NHL. What do you say to that argument?
2: Um, well, I, I, you know, I, I don't obviously I don't subscribe to it because I think when it comes to the LGBTQ community, uh, there's still a lot of work there that needs to be done in terms of society's acceptance of of this this group, and so it becomes even more important for people who are sort of considered our heroes, you know, and, and athletes, whether you know they want to accept that role or not, are viewed differently. They have you know they have a they have enormous influence in in society uh, whether they voice it or not and so when they pull pull on those jerseys for five minutes in a warm-up uh, you know it, it's it's very symbolic it says you know it says you know to the LBGT community that their league the NHL those arenas are welcoming safe places to be and everybody should know that and and uh, and, and I, so I think it makes a statement because uh, it makes a statement too to the people in the in the arena who might not be accepting of the LGBTQ community and 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 people of of, of that uh, you know in that community. So mm-hmm. I, I I think it's I think it's in, in terribly important, and I I think that there is a role for professional athletes to make statements um, on on big societal issues. Mm-hmm. It's all it that that goes. Back to, you know, Cassius Clay and Muhammad Ali, you know, mm-hmm. taking a stand. I mean, I, I, you know, there's nothing that says that sports leagues and, and athletes shouldn't be able to take stands and, and want to be part of a, a, a big, important discussion in society.
1: We are speaking to Gary Mason, National Affairs columnist for the Globe and Mail. He penned a uh, column just recently in the Globe about uh, the NHL uh, deciding to uh, get rid of their theme nights. Uh, And uh, Mr. Mason, of course, said that uh, the NHL turtled to a small minority of players. Uh, Now, Gary, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, players and whether or not they should be involved in politics or taking action or companies taking action uh, in regards to politics, especially in a very um, polarized political environment. Now, you look at uh, Bud Light, they uh, recently used an influencer to speak to the trans community and there was tremendous pushback uh, from their customers and from co- conservatives as well. Do you think companies are going to be more hesitant now to stick their neck out uh, a little bit in regards to holding a pride night or saying your product uh, is available for all?
2: Yeah, I, I Jazz. I think that I think that I think you could be right about that. I mean, there could be a hesitation. On the other hand, you never know what is going to spark, you know, sort of dissent in society. I mean, it could it could work the other way. It, you know, a, a company could do something that makes them look anti-inclusive, and there'll be a, a you know there'll be a, a pushback and a, a rebellion by customers that that you know makes them have to you know readjust their, you know their, their viewpoints on things so it it can it can work both ways i mean yeah you're right about uh anheuser-busch i mean they're, they're probably paying a bit of a price right now and and other companies will look at that but as i say it it has that that argument also has a flip side and it can work it can work the other way if you look uh, if you look you know in any way homophobic or or not inclusive. Mm-hmm. So what we'll we'll, remains to be seen how that's going to play out, Chad.
1: Mm-hmm. And the NFL had some challenges with Colin Kaepernick, uh, the African-American quarterback. Um, you know, when you look at our, our, our um, major cities in North America, incredibly diverse, multi-ethnic, um, is there a challenge uh, for sports like NHL to start reflecting that diversity? Is there a broader existential challenge? What I mean by that is not just in regards to showing diversity among its players, but even just, uh, attracting people to play hockey in major cities like Vancouver, where their land is not cheap. So there's less hockey rinks potentially being built. Uh, meaning the sport, uh, is probably going to be a little bit more, uh, it is more expensive. Uh, you know, Mm -hmm. practices are at five or six in the morning when moms and dads don't like to take their kids or kids don't like going. And it's a tougher sport to be involved in. Is there a longer term existential challenge to, to the NHL in regards to it being a fabric of this country because of some of the obvious expenses, time, uh, and greater reflection of society on the ice.
2: Absolutely, I don't think there's any question about it. I mean, uh, <laughs> whether you like it or not, it it you know hockey is a very white sport. You know, not just in Canada but in the United States, and and the cost of it uh, has a lot to do with it. But I also think, especially in the United States, you know, it's not it's not, you know, a number one, it's not a top tier sport in the United States. It's still kind of a, you know, third or fourth rate sport. I mean, football, you know, reigns supreme in the United States. So, you know, superior, you know, black athletes, for instance, are are gonna gravitate to to that sport or baseball or, you know, uh, something else. So, uh, but, you know, hockey, there's no question that that that's a challenge. I mean, hockey talks a good game when it comes to diversity and, and wanting to, you know, you know, have uh, different uh, people of different ethnic origins more more involved in the game, but that has proved to be a real challenge. I mean, golf has got the the same challenge. You know, golf talks about diversity all the time. I mean, uh, and and it's still an incredibly white sport, despite, you know, despite what Tiger Woods did to the sport and brought to the sport, I I think that they, you know, I think golf, I know we're shifting, you know, sports right now, but golf really failed to capitalize On the impact that he had and uh there is you know just a shameful lack of you know black athletes playing playing golf and you know a lot of that is is, is cost it's you know the country clubs that you know that you you know a lot of these kids come from so um you know talk is cheap and you know a lot of these sports organizations you know like to get up in front of the media and and they all they all say the right thing but it's actually you know it seen it manifest itself on the playing fields and the in the in the arenas and on the you know on the links it's just another thing entirely
1: Mm -hmm. gary thank you so much for your time today my friend oh my pleasure as always jazz it's great talking to you Well, our next guest is not a stranger to our listeners. Biff Naked released her first album back in 1994 when she was in her mid-twenties. Since then, she's gone on to become a platinum-selling recording artist, a best-selling author, a passionate entrepreneur, and advises and coaches other artists as a mentor. And manager t- uh, tonight, Biff Naked, returns to the Rickshaw Theatre to celebrate the 25th anniversary of her second album, I, Bificus. The fun begins at 7 o'clock. Welcome. <laughs> the, fun the fun begins fun indeed.
6: Begins. Yes, it's exciting.
1: Oh, it, you know, w- walk me through that. I mean, the, all the performances you've gone through, and you've got this great body of work, thousands of thousands of performances. Um, you're at a, this stage in your career. Like, What does something like this mean to you when you're performing tonight?
6: I'm so nervous. Are you? Oh, my gosh. Let's, I'm a middle-aged lady. Like, it's like, <laughs> you know, so, I, I mean, I, I make jokes, but it's like, you know, I was, um, Spaceman is from that album, for mm-hmm. example, and Lucky, and I still play those songs every single time I do a, a concert, and always probably will. Mm-hmm. And um, I still feel the same way. When I sing them, as I did when we wrote them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes I find that as I get older, I get more, I think things are funnier and I get more weepy. Oh, okay. And that just like ruins my credibility. As a <laughs> so what is that
1: nostalgia? Is it uh, you sort of probably thinking of your journey to get to where you are today You know, now?
6: it's really... Um, in the moment of in the moment of singing a song like Spaceman, which is about longing, mm-hmm. that person that wrote the song has never gone away. And that longing is never it, it never leaves you. And I think that it's not just true for an artist, it's true for a chef or a dishwasher or mm-hmm. a mom. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there's certain feelings we have that are always with us. They transcend the time, mm-hmm. you know, that we um journey and live and all the life experiences we have i still think some days you still say calgon take me away <laughs> which is what spaceman is it's yeah spaceman come and get me mm-hmm. you know
1: um we're all older and wiser as i like to believe i'm older and, and wiser uh, take me back to that second album my Bificus. who was biff naked then compared not comparing isn't the right word who was she at that time compared to who you are today
6: Um, I was extremely self-conscious. And I I mean, I I am today too, but I think at that time in my life, I was still very much afraid of what my um, little peers would think. I didn't have a lot of female um, colleagues or comrades in the punk scene in Vancouver. There weren't a lot of bands that had girls in them at that time. Mm -hmm. And I had just, you know, gotten a record deal Whereas some of the, you know, more technical... Bands or whatever mm-hmm. hadn't, so I felt badly for them. I felt it's almost like in a weird way, it's like a survivor's guilt mm-hmm. and so that never changes um but yeah, I was very self conscious and making the ibificus record was the first time I was in this big fancy studio mm-hmm. so um that was just they had a coffee machine <laughs> and they had like a private bathroom, you know, every other jam space studio we had been in was. You know, you had to go in the alley. Like mm-hmm. it was just so different, and it was so uh, such a magical time. Mm-hmm. Working with Glenn Rosenstein was incredible. He was so musical, and it, he just knew so much about music. He'd work and worked with so many artists. And at the time, I think we were always teasing him. He worked with Samantha Fox.
1: Yes, I remember some. So of that, yeah.
6: we we always sang those songs to him <laughs> as a you know to honor him, yeah, and tease him. And it was really interesting. It was interesting times and working with, at that time Sony five fifty. I mean they were Celine Dion's label. Yeah. So for them, you know, Michael Kaplan was the A and R on that on that record, and uh, to have this you know fancy in my eyes fancy New York music person have faith in my songwriting was Mm -hmm. just incredible. It was incredible. It was a really special time.
1: Uh, Can the music industry today, could the music industry today, or even Vancouver, create a Biff Naked today based on streaming, (laughs) based (laughs) on so many changes, technical changes, Mm. structural changes, financial changes to the music industry? Can there be a a Biff Naked that, that can come out today and succeed?
6: Absolutely. Because I think the thing about it is, even with today, they have so many tools that we didn't have back in the day. And I can't bemoan it. Like, we can't say, oh, come on, man, Aerosmith made records where they didn't have pro tools. You know, they couldn't yeah. fix, you know, the vocal notes. They couldn't fix drum, drum patterns. Um, but there is still such great music that comes out today. These tools enable artists uh, who don't have money who don't have big record labels giving them money to record, oh, they can still record their music and get it out there. And I always look at artists like Grimes, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Claire was making her music on her computer, you know, in Mm -hmm. Squamish. Yeah. And to me, I think that is that epitome. It's the epitome of artistry being able to transcend where you're from.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, your personal journey, uh, born in uh, India, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm not going to go through all of it. I mean, you, you spent time in Manitoba, a lot of challenges uh, as a child as well. Um, how did you persevere through all that? I mean, I was just reading all of it today, and there's, there's so much that you've had to <laughs> persevere every, through. You know? Everyone's
6: life is so much. You know, I blame my parents. Mm-hmm. My parents were optimists. And they're academics.
1: Are you an optimist, by the way?
6: I'm sick. I'm sick. I'm such an optimist. People, <laughs> you know, want me to die in the streets. They just can't stand it. Um, but I can't be any other way. And I blame my parents for this. Um, my father was uh, a very funny man, and he followed his passions. You know he, you know he he says that he was in medical school and fell in love with a mandible. And that's why yeah. he became a dentist. I mean, just always a joke. They always had jokes. And, uh, and I blame them for that. But having met my birth mom and uh, learning what my personality traits are and mannerisms that are exactly like this woman who's mm-hmm. only 15 years my senior, um, it, it's fun for me knowing what is environmental and what is genetic. Oh, wow. And I just think, and it's just fascinating. I feel very lucky. hmm Uh, To have had the upbringing that I did, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'll I'll always feel very fortunate.
1: Yeah, and have you gone back to India?
6: Yes, and of course, like a lot of kids that grew up in the in North America, you know, and maybe not, but I romanticized. India yes. a lot. My parents raised us as Christian, and if we wanted to be Hindu, Jain, whatever we wanted, they wanted to encourage us. So we always had a house full of Hindustani Kana and always a house full of Ravi Shankar, and mm-hmm. you know everything was embraced. Um, so when I went back, I went back with this very romantic idea uh, of what it was going to be like. My dad, was he had moved back with his second wife.
0: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, they were living in Ludhiana, but I flew to Mumbai and then uh, and then went to Bangalore. That's a whole other story. Um, and then went up to New Delhi and he came down to meet us there. And um, it was mind-blowing. I could not have been prepared uh, for how, how much of an impact it would have on me. Um, it was really magical, but it was also disheartening mm-hmm. uh, because North America is just so... I mean they're uh they have blinders on everyone here they don't under- well i shouldn 't say everybody it 's a very general brush with which I am painting, but mm-hmm. I just felt like um a lot of people don 't understand what real poverty is yes, and that many of the world 's most impoverished people live with much more joy than people here who have so much
1: that is true yeah i, I you know'm growing up in Indian home, obviously, but uh, I sense that too when I live there that they're is an acceptance of of life and mm-hmm. and they they recognize the position they're in but there is joy. They find so much joy. much joy. And there is something to be, that we in North America, or Western society, need mm-hmm. to do a better job understanding. We spend a lot of money trying to take care of ourselves, either medicating ourselves yes. or, or finding, trying to find that inner self through mm-hmm. yoga, through meditation, whatever it may be. Uh, and there it's somehow infused in their culture. Yes. That, that is so very much uh, beautiful in that sense. But, Absolutely. you know, you're also synonymous with Vancouver here. But you, you've moved to Vancouver, uh, Toronto now.
6: I have. Uh, so what's a lot of people the... think I've defected. <laughs> In a way, but I want you to know. I, so I know you I'm have, not a Leafs fan. But, uh, relax, but, <laughs> that's it's, good. It's that okay. is good.
1: Um, but um, there is a difference in those two cities. To sort both amazing cities, different mm-hmm. cities. Uh, how do you find living in Toronto now?
6: Toronto has something that Vancouver does not that I need and see every day, and that's Cardinals. Oh. They sing, and they're jolly and funny. I'm in love with birds. Okay. <laughs> I'm in love with all the birds in Ontario. It's not a lie. I know it's very corny. Really? Um, and Vancouver is, you know, I think that my time here was so important. I feel like I cut my teeth here in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up here. I became an adult here. I came of age here. I survived my cancer here. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would survive it in any other city. I'm so happy with the oncology teams. Mm-hmm. Um but Toronto, for me, right now, is uh, it's been powerful. It's been very interesting for me to understand the differences um, in uh, just some of the nonprofits in each city, what the needs are mm-hmm. in different cities. The demograph is different, the population is different. It's just been fascinating.
1: Yeah, um, how did you cope with COVID as well, an artist, as an individual?
6: The pandemic obviously shut down. Um, work for so many people um i was very lucky you know i could uh kind of utilize some of the savings that i still had or whatever the case uh a lot of artists did streaming shows and i think that made nicey nicey for a while i think that it was fine but there's nothing like um being able to put butts in seats Mm -hmm. and, and get out there i love being a performer and uh i don't think i'll ever stop
1: no, that is amazing. Well, today, uh, tonight uh, at seven o'clock, doors open. Um, I want to wish you nothing but the best uh, Thank for you. Uh, so for nice. for uh, tonight's uh, performance. Thank I know you. it's it's big, but you know, in this industry, in in the, in the music industry, and I, I'm I'm an outsider, but uh, you know, the greatest gift is longevity and the ability to still create and continue mm-hmm. to create. Mm-hmm. Never mind one album, but many albums and to survive in an industry and still be relevant and still create is the ultimate accomplishment in my mind. And
6: Absolutely. You have certainly have done that. Thank you. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's, it's still fun. Biff Naked, thank you so much. Thank you for Ab- having me. Absolute you. pleasure meeting you. And, of course, uh, uh, you return to the Rickshaw Theatre tonight at 7 o'clock to celebrate the 25th anniversary of your second album, I, Bifficus. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, a 13-year sentence, a court handed to a Dutch cyberbully, Uh, in the case involving Amanda Todd. Uh, it should be reduced to four and a half years, and that's according to a prosecutor in, uh, in the Netherlands today. Uh, the request was made in Amsterdam. Um, the case, of course, everybody has heard about over the last few years. Uh, Aidan Coban was convicted last year of extortion, harassment, and other crimes involving Amanda Todd. Uh, Mr. Coban is serving an 11 year sentence uh, in the N- Netherlands for similar crimes targeting, get this, 33 other victims. Uh, Mr. Coban's Canadian sentence is to be served in the Netherlands after he serves out his original prison term in August of next year. Joining me to talk a little bit about the sentencing of Mr. Koban in a Dutch court is Carol Todd. She's the mother of Amanda Todd and founder of the Amanda Todd Legacy so- Society. Uh, Carol, thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you
1: for having me. Uh, what is going through your mind today as you listen to uh, the yeah. argument made by the prosecutor? You also had Mr. Coban's uh, defense lawyer uh, asking for even less time, one year uh, in, in, in prison. What are you thinking of today?
0: Well, you know, I've been listening and reading various news media articles and um, Although I would have liked Mr. Coban to receive the 13 years of the Canadian sentence that was um, given last October, um, I was told that he could have possibly gotten zero. Right, so mm-hmm. that's why I'm I'm looking at the 4.5, which is better than zero. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it truly would have made me happier if he had gotten the maximum. Yeah. But but it, it's another country's laws, and we can't do anything about that. I can't fight it i
1: yeah. right um when the sentencing was coming down when you were talking to authorities, did they tell you that look, this will have to be looked at by Dutch authorities by their laws, their standards, and this may get reduced potentially
0: yes, yes I was that information was shared with me um last. Uh, I believe it was probably closer to the end of the trial or during the sentencing, and it was actually a Dutch media person that um, had investigated out in the Netherlands and found that information out. So um, when I found out, I started asking the questions, and it was indeed true. So um, it's out of the hands of, of the Canadian justice system as soon as, as, soon as he was sentenced in October
1: and, and is this simply because they uh, it, it's the, the, the crime itself is not de- deemed uh, as severe as let's say Canadian courts have, have deemed it
0: um, what happened to mr. Caban out here in court has set Canadian precedents and it's raised the bar um, for other trials that will occur with the same situations mm-hmm. and so that's a good thing. Um, in in the Netherlands what they what their law and what they're arguing about is that he is I mean, he was in court in twenty seventeen um with the charges that he had against thirty nine other people, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And the result of that was a maximum sentence of ten years and eight months. And that was the maximum that he could have gotten for all that victimization. So in in when we look at that, that's not very much right? Yes. Um, And then for Amanda, it was four and a half. So they are claiming that because the crimes he committed to those victims, the 33 minor children um, were the same as Amanda's. And so he's already served his time and he's upset that he had to come to Canada to serve, to to go to trial because it took away his privacy because our media published his image, his picture. Um, He didn't feel, he still feels that he was unjustly tried.
1: And 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 I guess this is part of his defense as well. Like the prosecutor uh, in uh, in the in Amsterdam was saying, they're asking for four years. But the defense lawyer, his lawyer, Mr. Kobenzler, is saying because of this publicity, because his face is being shown, yes. because he doesn't have his privacy, I'm a bit gobsmacked by the so-called offense uh, and his rights. That the defense yep. is asking it should, only, it should only be a year in prison as opposed to the 13 years he got in Canada.
0: I know. You know what I read that and and the. He- the criticism, and I just had to read it a few times and thought, "Oh my gosh, really?" And then um, I believe the defense also said that um, it, it, Mr. Coban shouldn't have gone to Canada for a trial, right? Mm-hmm. And and the prosecution said, "Well, he probably shouldn't have victimized people from out of the Netherlands if he only wanted to stay in the Netherlands yeah. for a trial." Um, so we have all those all those things, and Mr. Koban hasn't. As far as I understand he's he hasn't gone to through any rehabilitation. And so in the minds of the judge um in BC Supreme Court, he was he is he's got a profile to re victimize others. And so um also defense in, in BC in a trial last summer, they only wanted two years. Right. Yeah. And and prosecution wanted twelve, and he got thirteen. So the one year isn't that different from what our pro the prosecution out here asked for. And so hopefully the judges will. There were three judges sitting today, um, and hopefully they'll look at it and they'll um, they'll they'll uh, do what's right. Um the other part is I wrote a victim impact statement for this Dutch hearing mm-hmm. and Mr. Koban and his lawyer um because they got a copy of it too um put a went to court and and said they didn't want it read out loud and then they decided that they didn't want the judges to have a copy of it to formalize to to make their decision so my victim impact statement has been
1: basically thrown out. Carol, I honestly don't know how you do it sometimes. I really don't. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I thank you so much for your time today. I'm sorry you have to go through all this, and and I know you're still fighting uh, the good fight and, and I'm very proud of you. Thank you so much for your time today.
0: I have to say also that if, if he gets years, he will appeal it. So this is going to go on.
1: No. Oh. Well, let's, fingers crossed, um, he needs to do the time, he really does. Thank you so much, Carol.
0: Okay, thanks, Dan. (laughs)